Well, as you know, we finished our series in Hebrews for the time being, and uh, we're almost on Christmas, and we'll be picking up the Christmas theme from Matthew in the next week. Um, but this week, and in two weeks' time, uh, we're going to deal with some of the subjects that were given to us on these cards. Now, you thought these went into a black hole, didn't you? Never to come out again. Yes, Kevin's from his head. I think some of the subject matter has already been dealt with, really, in, um, uh, in some of the sermons. But we're going to deal specifically with two points. And today, and I'll just read what's on the card. It says, life after death, seeing loved ones in heaven. Well, I've kind of reinterpreted that into a title, which you'll see on your sheets. Everybody got a sermon, sermon notes? Anybody without sermon notes? Okay, fine. So what happens when we die? And then in subtitles, as it were, will we see our loved ones again? I don't know if that's a big question for you, uh, but the Bible has some answers for us. People have all sorts of views about what happens when we die. Some people say it's nothing. You know, when you're dead, you're dead. Other people say we come back as a butterfly or something else like that. But what does the Bible say? So let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you that you are the Lord of life and that you are the conqueror of death. And uh, Lord, you have the answers. Lord, whatever the world says, whatever other religions say, Uh, You are the one who has the answer. You are the one who has faced death, you've conquered it, and you've come back again. You are alive forevermore, and we've worshipped you, Lord Jesus, this morning. Uh, Not just the crucified one, but the one who rules and reigns in heaven. So we ask you, will you help us this morning? Will you open our eyes? Will you enlighten us? Um, Lord, that we shall not be ignorant of these things, but more than that, that the truth of them should change our lives. Please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Some have suggested this is a difficult subject for the Western mind to cope with in the 21st century, that death is a bit of a taboo subject in polite company. It's also been said that um, in the Victorian era, sex was the taboo subject, but people were very happy to talk about death. Well, now death is the taboo subject and people are very happy to talk about sex. It's all worked that way. And um, maybe the, the attitude, the prevalent attitude in, in our day and generation is summed up in the, the saying by Woody Allen, it's not that I'm afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. I'm sure he's just said that to make people laugh, but there's an underlying principle there and what it is is that people are more concerned with their mode of death, how they're going to die, whether it's going to be painless or whatever, than they are about what might be there afterwards. They have no concerns particularly as to whether there is anything they have to face uh, after death. And yet I think deep down um, people do have a kind of a sense of eternity, especially when they, they come under pressure. And they seem to think there must be more than this. When life goes on with a kind of a drudgery, we must be here for more than this. And uh, it says in Ecclesiastes that he, God, has also set eternity in the hearts of men. 
So deep down in our psyche, even if we try and suppress it in some ways, it's there. And hence the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. If you don't know that that, uh, saying, it really means when people are hiding from the enemy maybe and in a tight spot, fearing death, suddenly they cry out to God they've denied all their lives uh, because there's something in them that says there must be somebody there and please, if you are there, help me. Death is seen, I think, by any stretch of the imagination as an intrusion. It's an enemy, it's an unnatural natural. You know, we know it happens to everybody, but it still seems unnatural. Why should it be that, that people who gain so much knowledge and experience and skills in life, it's all gone, all gone. Sometimes, of course, we can pass that on to other people, but not always. So what's the biblical view of death and the afterlife? I think we have to face the fact that even for Christians, death invariably involves loss and grieving is an appropriate response to that. Um, clear, quite clearly in the Bible, there were people who trusted God but grieved over their loved ones uh, when they were taken from them. And it's, it's an appropriate response. It's what, how, this is how we deal very often with death. And Jesus himself, at the grave of Lazarus, wept. And you think, well, come on, Jesus, you're going to raise him to, death, raise him from, to life in a moment. But nevertheless... Even Jesus entered into that natural human response uh, to loss, uh, that he wept. But um, even though it's an appropriate response, for Christians, some of the pain is removed. And the scripture there that Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. And we'll come across that phrase again, and all it means is somebody's died. It's a nice way of saying Somebody's died. It's a metaphor for death. So we don't want you to be ignorant about those that have fallen asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. And the inference is Christians have a hope. Even though we grieve over death, we do have a hope and it does lessen the pain. So what's the Christian hope? Well, put simply, it's two stages. The one who dies in Christ, that's the one who's a believer in Jesus Christ, trusting him, as their Lord and Saviour, they go to be with Christ. Then, at the end of the age, when Christ returns at the end of the age, all history will be wound up. All believers in Christ will be given resurrection bodies and then salvation will be complete. See, our salvation is a process that began um, with Jesus, of course, dying on the cross. But for us, when we put our trust in him, So there was a day when, quite legitimately, we were saved. We were secure in God. But it's almost as if we are being saved and we will be saved because that process will only be complete when we're given new bodies that are fit for our new life with God, our our heavenly dwelling. You could put it more simply and say, when we die, we go to be with Jesus. And for some people, that's good enough. They know and they love Jesus, Um, they trust him and say, well, don't bother me with the details. If Jesus is going to be there, that's fine. That's good enough. You know, I'm not really interested in all the things. People argue over them anyway, so I don't really want to know. And, And that's fine. And I think, you know, Jesus even accepts that to some extent for us, I'm sure. And, um, you know, when his disciples were a bit perplexed 
And we read about it in John 14, which is the reference there. Um, He says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, trust me. You trust God? Trust me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I, would, I, would I have told you that I'm going away there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. The description of many rooms is not trying to tell us what heaven is like. It's just saying there's room enough for everybody. There's room enough for all who put their trust in me, the many rooms. But all he was saying was, you can trust me. I'm going there, I'm going to come back for you, and you can be with me. And that may be enough for many people. And there in John 17, which is a prayer that Jesus prays, a lovely prayer towards the end of John's Gospel, Jesus said this, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus wants us to be with him, and he's inviting us to do that. And for some people, that's enough. And if that's enough for you, you may not be interested in the rest of what I've got to say, but perhaps you will, I don't know. So I guess the person who put that uh, question on the card is interested in what the Bible may have to say about what happens when we die. But let's have a a couple of questions, first of all, that may be in preparation for that. Why don't we live forever? Uh, There again, as I said earlier, you know, we amass all this information and skills. Why can't we carry on exercising those forever? Anyway, we need to look at the nature of man to find out why we don't live forever. And um, man is more than a physical body. I'm sure we all appreciate that. The scientists can reduce us down to piles of chemicals and they tell us we've got enough, I always remember this bit, we've got enough iron in us to make a six-inch nail or something rather. But there we go, that's really inf- interesting information, isn't it? But we, we know that we, we, are, we are made up of chemicals, largely water, so they tell us. But we're more than a physical body. And we go back to Genesis, the first book in the Bible, God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created the universe, created uh, the vegetation, the animals, and then he comes to the pinnacle of his creation, which is man. And we are a special creation of of God. We're not derived from the animals. We're not an accident that's happened from the animals. It says there, and so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, He created them. The Bible doesn't actually explain to us what it means to be in the image of God. But if we look at man at that time, uh, you'll see that man had a relationship with God that was meaningful, that God and man communicated together. God gave man responsibility uh, to look after the earth, to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth, and to be his representative on earth. So there was a fellowship between God and man at that time. And if you want to know what that that looks like in its perfection, then we look at Jesus, because it's said of Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's from Colossians. And then in Hebrews that we've been looking at recently, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. 
So what's a man look like who's in perfect communion with God? As it was probably at the beginning, we look at Jesus and we see that he said, I only do what I see my father doing. And he had that wonderful relationship until on the cross that relationship was broken because Jesus was bearing our sin. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us. And God's judgment was on him on our behalf. But the rest of his life was lived in perfect communion. The other reference from Genesis there says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So we get all these chemicals that come from the earth, but God has to do something and he breathes in man and man becomes a living being. God puts his spirit into man and so that we, part of our makeup is that we have a spirit. We have a spirit right? and that's very important. You could um, define death as when the spirit leaves the body because all that's left is a shell and we then decide what to do with that what we do with the body. We know the person is no longer there. Whatever our religious views are, whatever our theology is, we have this consciousness, actually they're not there anymore. And we then take our attention usually away from the body and think of, of, of other things. So man became a living being. In the beginning, right when God created man, um, death is not mentioned. It's not even mentioned apart from a warning. And death is only mentioned as a warning. And there it is, Genesis 2, 16, 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. It's not like us saying to somebody, you'll die, because they know what that's all about. Man would not have necessarily known what that was. But there is the warning. If you eat, if you disobey, if you're in rebellion, you will die. Sadly, the man and the woman disobeyed and ate from the tree. And rebellion brings God's judgment and the sentence of death. God, in his justice, had to carry out the sentence that he had promised. And um, what we find in the Bible, there are three dimensions to death. There is spiritual death, which is what happened to the man when he, dis- when he and the woman disobeyed, that relationship with God was broken. And we see that. If you were to read the, the story there, you'll see there's a broken relationship. Man is hiding from God now. He's fearful of God. And that relationship is broken. Physical death came later. Man didn't die immediately, but it did come later. And we find that this spiritual death and this physical death has been handed on to all mankind. We're all subject to that. The scripture says that through one man came death into the world, and that is uh, Adam. And so we inherit that. We inherit that spiritual and physical death. And um, if you are familiar with Paul's letter to the the Ephesians, thousands of years after this, men men and women are still dead without Jesus. And he's talking to Christians and reminding them what they were beforehand. He said, as for you, before you were a Christian, you were dead in your trespasses, and sins. And we also find that death is also eternal. Another question, if you turn over the page. Why did God choose death as his punishment for our rebellion? Ever thought about that? Why did we understand maybe God had to punish rebellion, but why choose death? 
And um, here we've got to be a little bit speculative. Uh, I think there are commentators who suggest this is the case, but I think this is reasonable. Death is to put a limit on man's arrogance and rebellion, which consisted of him wanting to be like God. If you know the story of the fall of man, the temptation by Satan, Satan said to the woman, you know, you haven't got to take any notice of God, you won't die if you eat of this fruit, because God knows in that day you'll be like him, you'll be like God's. And she thought, that's a good idea. Come on, Adam, let's have a, some of this fruit, or whatever. So that's, that's the rebellion that's in the heart of man. In some measure, it is because they want to be like God. And God's not going to fill the earth with rebellious people. So there is a limit. There is a limit uh, on uh, that, that, that amount of rebellion for each individual. Nevertheless, we should not treat death with passive resignation. No case, sirrah, sirrah. You know, whatever will be, will be. Now, in the natural, um, people don't do that. Steve's out there with his ambulance trying to keep people from death at times. Right? We don't want people to die and we work hard. And I'm very pleased that the policy of, in our medical profession is that we save life. We don't take it, we save life. And that's very encouraging when you're in those people's hands. But God's also involved in this. And we, we don't treat death passively, but we work for redemption like God. God wants to restore and to recover uh, what was lost at the beginning. And that's one of the things we call redemption. We buy back, we recover something that was lost at the beginning. And here's the paradox. The God who is against us because of sin, he has to be. God is pure and holy. He is also for us because of his grace. So, Right from the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out from the garden, God already had a plan in mind for the recovery. And so we get this picture of creation, fall, redemption. That's how it looks. The fall, the term fall, is when Adam and Eve sinned, if you're not familiar with that that term, when man fell. And through the redeeming, Death of Jesus. We see Jesus as a redeemer. That's one of the titles that he has. He is our redeemer um, and he redeemed us. Uh, He paid the price with his own death to, as it were, bring us back uh, from uh, that uh, judgment of God. He was the one. And now death for the believer has been transformed into a doorway into eternal life. It is just a doorway now. And um, also, death will be abolished uh, and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. So that's a a kind of a build-up to it. You know, why do we die? And and why is death God's judgment on us as human beings? So what happens when we die? And we're now, first of all, looking at Christians. What happens to people who are in the Lord. That's often the term that's used. People have various views about what happens. Remember I said there are two stages. We go to be with Jesus and then one day when God winds up the whole of history, Jesus will return and we will receive new bodies, resurrection bodies. And we'll find out a little bit more in a moment what that means. 
Some people use um, some description as to what happens in that, in that intervening time. So they use the term intermediate state, which is a bit like a waiting room, that um, spirits, departed spirits go into a waiting room. Um, if it's anything like waiting rooms, the doctor's waiting room or a hospital, it's all going to be a bit boring, isn't it, if it's like that? Just not knowing when somebody's going to come through the door. You know, when you're anxious to get some news, you're looking for somebody to come through a door, aren't you? Others have talked about it as a soul sleep. In other words, it's like, it's like when you go to bed, it seems as if there's been no... Well, if you have a good night's sleep, that is. If you, that you shut your eyes and when you wake up, it's morning and you're not aware of the intervening time. But I don't think the scripture indicates that. You will find as we're looking at this subject... There's, there's not like a manual on it which gives you, you know, one, two, three, this is what happens. We have to delve into the scriptures to find out. But I think what Paul says in Philippians gives us a clue that there will be a consciousness of being with Jesus. Yes, we go to be with the Lord, but we will be conscious of that. And um, what Paul says there is, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's happy to live his life serving Jesus, but he sees that death will actually be some gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. That doesn't sound like the waiting room, does it? With nobody there. Uh, It sounds like that he is going to enjoy the presence of Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. And later on in his letter to the Ephesians, he said, I want to know him. I want to know him more. I want to... And this is part of the realisation of that wanting to know, that when he dies, he knows immediately he'll go to be with the Lord. Maybe not so conclusive, but I think it's an indication Um, You remember there were two thieves that were crucified alongside Jesus. One of them had a go at Jesus. The other one was um, more contrite. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, um, he says to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Not you're going to go into a waiting room and sometime I'll pick you up. No, you'll be with me. And to be with somebody is to enjoy them and to have fellowship with them. So that's what I believe happens at that point. But that's only the first stage, and um, our redemption includes a bodily resurrection. Jesus dying in our place and rising from the dead reverses all God's verdict on sin and death. Everything is reversed, not just our spirits, and um, the, the, the bodies go to hell, as it were, Uh, to coin a phrase, but no, God is concerned for the whole of us. So this all um, will be redeemed, spiritual, physical and eternal. Um, We can't do better really if we want now to know something about uh, this resurrection, to look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a long chapter and I'm only going to pick some bits out, but if you'd like to turn to that please. 1 Corinthians 15. There were people in his day that were inquisitive. Come on, Paul, what happens? What's this resurrection all about? I can't understand it. How is it that we're going to be raised to life again? 
And uh, so Paul gives some instruction to the church there. And it's available for us as well. As I say, it's, it would be good for you to read the whole chapter, but because of time, I'm going to um, just select some verses. So, first of all, we read verses 1 to 8. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. And I want you to just hold that. Uh, it was so important for him to say, the gospel saves you. And we have to say, what does the gospel save us from? But I'll come to that later. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you, as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Okay, remember that term? It means they've died. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Um, Paul was not somebody who walked with Jesus during his life like the other apostles. Uh, but he saw Jesus on the Damascus Road later. I think that's really what he's referring to. So there we are. He's saying this is, in essence, what the gospel is about, and it's an integral part of the gospel. And then we now um, pick it up at verse 20. There's some discussion there about whether there is a resurrection of the dead. There were those in Jesus' day who said there was and others who said there wasn't a resurrection of the dead. And Paul's trying to make the point, Jesus has been raised from the dead, so there must be. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And by the way, when we mean first fruits here, we mean a forerunner, a prototype. It's like somebody, uh, a farmer, who's got apple trees, and he's wondering, um, are the apples ripe yet? And somebody comes and brings an apple and says, look, Look, this is the first one, it's ripe. That means all the others are going to be ripe. So that's what first fruits means uh, in the Bible. It's like saying it's a forerunner, it's a prototype. So Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who've died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, and we mentioned that earlier, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Then we come to verse 35. Here's where Paul answers those who are inquisitive about it. And we get kind of agricultural language, seeds and flowers and plants and things like that. And um, the principle is that um, if you have a seed, it doesn't look like the plant that it's going to be. And it's amazing. We put the seed into the ground, it seemingly dies, but from that um, comes a, a, a plant you can admire or eat or whatever. 
He says, but someone may ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body, with what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed he gives his own, its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are also earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another. And, and stars differ from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. No, it's going to rot. Uh, it's also raised imperishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That doesn't mean to say it doesn't have substance. It just means it's fitted uh, for a new um, uh, habitation. And then we come to verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, that is, we will not all die, but we will all be changed. That is, that because Jesus make, well, well, when Jesus comes, there will be people who are still alive. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. The must is because that's what Jesus has prepared for us. That's what he has enabled with his own death and resurrection. And the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So there's a little explanation about what this body that we're going to receive is like. Now, I guess it, it is figurative language, but we mustn't be put off by the figurative language because it actually reveals a truth. The second part of the question is, will we see our loved ones again? Will we recognise them? There's a bit of a clue in the Gospels, although I think it's a bit tenuous. Um, in the parable Jesus taught about the rich man and Lazarus, um, they, they both died and... Uh, uh, the rich man recognises Lazarus in heaven. Now, it is a story, it is a parable to illustrate something else, but I don't think Jesus would deli deliberately try to mislead people. Um, and then we have the situation of um, Jesus taking Peter, James and John up a mountain where Jesus, as, we, as it's described, is transfigured. They see something of his glory to come. And in the midst of all that, there appears Moses and Elijah and Peter recognises them. Now, I don't know how he did because he never lived at their time 
but he recognises them. So there is some recognition. But I think our greatest assurance must come from Jesus himself. And uh, if we look at this verse from John that's printed for you, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We've already read there in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus in his resurrection appeared to a number of people, 500 at one time. And it was pretty obvious they recognised him. And even though there were some differences about Jesus after his resurrection, he was able to pass through doors, he was clearly recognisable. And they could fellowship with him. Right? They could still enjoy him. They knew who he was. And so I think that is our greatest assurance. We shall be like him. And if we are like him, then there's every chance we will recognise uh, one another. And people recognised Jesus unless he wanted to hide himself from them. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it said he was hidden from them. His identity was hidden from them for a little while until he revealed himself when they had a meal together. And even to Mary when she's at the, at the tomb. She didn't recognise Jesus straight away, but nevertheless. So I'm pretty confident we will know one another in the resurrection. We will know people, we will recognise them. Relationships are likely to be a little bit different maybe. Um, I said to you that some people, some of the Jews believed in the resurrection, others didn't. There were two political parties, as it were, the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. And the Sadducees came to Jesus with a trick question. There are seven brothers who all successively die and they keep marrying the widow that's left. And he's, they're saying, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? So here's Jesus' answer. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. doesn't mean we'll be angels, but we'll be like the angels, which I interpret to mean there will be no sexuality. Okay? Now, whether we'll still um, know our husband or wife in that relationship, I don't know. I leave you to decide whether that's a good idea or not, really or whether you're going to have a brand new start, but I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that with you. Um, time is pushing on, but I, I want to kind of change the tone a little bit now because what I feel is that we cannot be true to the gospel unless we deal with the unbeliever as well as the believer. So far, we've talked about what the wonderful prospects that there are for the believer, the hope that the believer has. But in winding up of history, God will deal with all people. So we, all people will be dealt with. And here's a, a reference from Hebrews. Just as people are destined to die once, so no, re no reincarnation, okay? no coming back as flies or butterflies or whatever else, we die once, after that to face judgment. So every human being is accountable to God. Every human being is accountable to God. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. 
not everybody, but many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Who are those who are waiting for him? Those who know him as Lord and Saviour? I trust we are those who are waiting for him. But nevertheless, the whole of humanity will come before God's judgment. So God's sentence on the unrepentant, right? those who refuse to repent and turn to Jesus, is eternal punishment in hell. That's not very nice to say. It's not a very nice uh, thought. But nevertheless, what we have to say is that some of the most sobering and awesome statements on this punishment come from the lips of Jesus. This lovely, compassionate Son of God who loved us, who loved people, who loved the people that others didn't, nevertheless, some of the words about hell um, come from him. And these are just a selection. You could find many more. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one, that's God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, in other words, if you can't stop looking at things that are causing you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus, out of his kindness and mercy, warned people about the consequence of unrepented sin. If they have not found God's loving forgiveness, this is the consequence. This is the automatic consequence. And I think, quite naturally, people's response when they hear about hell, which incidentally was not in, uh, invented by Victorian preachers uh, who wanted to frighten people into submission. It's so very clearly. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven uh, because he wanted to warn people. And the cry may go out from us. How can a God of love consign people to hell? From our very limited human perspective, it doesn't... It doesn't seem right, doesn't seem right. But that's because we totally underestimate God's holiness and righteousness and we totally underestimate the gravity of our sin and rebellion against God. So God's love is righteous and holy and his wrath is a measured response to our sin and rebellion. It's a measured response. In other words, God's judgment on us is appropriate according to our sin. It's not an indiscriminate fit of temper, some despot who throws his teddy around or whatever they say, you know? It's, it's not in, an indiscriminate fit of temper or a burst of rage. It is a measured judgment on sin. Now Romans in chapter 1 tells us that some of this judgment is already being meted out because God allows people to face the consequences of their godlessness. You know, people do things wrong and God says, I'll leave you to face the consequences of that. But the full extent of judgment is reserved for the end of time. And it is this wrath, this, this judgment against sin, that Jesus saves us from. It's from this that he saves us. 
There in 1 Thessalonians, a scripture there. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We have to ask the question, why did we become Christians? There may be all sorts of things that led us to that point. Um, some people say, well, and some people even present the gospel to say, well, if you want to be, you know, why don't you become a Christian? You'll have, um, you know, very much more purpose in your life. Um, God will help you sort out your problems. Um, you even, maybe even help you sort out your financial problems. You'll have a much better life. You'll have a purpose for living. You'll have new friends and everything like that. Now, lots of those things are absolutely true, but it's not the fundamental. The fundamental thing is that Jesus has rescued us from the wrath of God. We, have, we will be spared judgment that consigns us to hell because of Jesus. And that's so, so important. Sin will be punished. That's justice. And we all have that sense of justice, don't we? If we think people don't get their just desserts, all right, we're indignant. You know, they've done this and we've just not got justice. And if God is going to be God, he has to be a God of justice, absolute justice that maybe we don't understand because we don't see everything as he does. But sin will be punished either in Christ on our behalf or it will be punished in ourselves. There's the choice. It doesn't have to be punished in us, but if we um, receive Jesus as our saviour, believe that he took our punishment, then that's what will happen. He will be punished. Jesus on the cross, it can be described, went to hell for us. He went to hell in our place. Um, Not just um, the terrible physical pain that he suffered there on the cross, but the separation from God, which was perhaps his worst anguish. Jesus went to hell for us. So sin will be punished, either in Christ or on our behalf, or it will be punished in ourselves. And the arrangement will be just, because God is just. Um, From our perspective, our human selfish perspective, um, we're not sure about it. But if we know God to be the, the judge of all the earth, who is absolutely just, then the arrangement will be just and no one will have the least cause to complain because it will be just, absolutely just. So the doctrine of hell, um, without the doctrine of hell, the gospel message loses its power. If it's just, well, come to Jesus and have a better life, come to Jesus, have your problems sorted, that is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has rescued us. He has saved us. Remember at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that uh, Paul said, by this gospel you are saved. We are saved from the consequences of our sin. And um, there's a couple of scriptures here. The first one is so, so familiar. So many people can quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, one and only son. That means he gave him as a sacrifice for our sins. Not just gave him to be a nice example, gave him to come and spend a bit of time here and heal a few people, but gave him to take our place, to be a substitute uh, under God's judgment. That whosoever or whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
It's easy for us to concentrate on the eternal life, the good bit, if you like. And, we, and that's right, we should look at heaven and say, this is fantastic what God has secured for us. Remember last week I talked about the fact that from Hebrews it said of Jesus, who for the joy set before him you know, endured the cross and despised the shame and that we are the joy that was set before him. And so Jesus willingly went to the cross so that he could have us as his brothers and sisters in eternity. But the other side of the coin is Jesus went to the cross to help us um, and, and keep us from hell. That that is the major thing that he did. And so we often don't major on the shall not perish. We major on but have eternal life, but it's there. And then 2 Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God, even though God is just and must punish sin, and that hell is a reality. However it's dressed up in, in you know, figurative language, it doesn't destroy the reality of it. Uh, God's heart is that everyone should repent. Okay? Now, I just want to say this morning, I know that, no, because I know most of you, that most of you have been Christians and have trusted Jesus for years. But I just want to f- pause for a moment and say, is there anyone here whom you know that you could not face God? You don't quite know why, but you could not face God just at this moment. That you do not know that you have escaped God's judgment in hell. You don't know that. You've not got that assurance. And God says you can have that assurance and you can have it now because God's offer is of salvation is open to you. Let's just pause for a moment. Let's close our eyes. Father, you did not spare your son. You did not spare him because you loved us and you wanted to remove the curse of our sin from our lives and the judgment that it brought. You wanted to remove that. And you paid the the full price. Jesus paid the full price for our sin and rebellion. And Lord, you've made this wonderful offer. If we will trust him, if we will put our trust in him, if we will see him as the one who has gone to the cross and who has taken our punishment, then you are willing Lord, to justify us, even though we're sinners, you're willing to justify us and declare us righteous, even the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Father God. Thank you for this amazing exchange that you're offering. If you know that you've never enjoyed that exchange with God, where you've given over your sin to God and received his righteousness, you can do it now. I'm just going to pray a prayer and you can just pray it in your own heart. It's as simple as that. It's your surrender. Are you willing to surrender to God into his keeping, into the security uh, of the salvation of Jesus and know that you will not have to face God in judgment? That's the message. That's what Jesus has rescued us from. So I'm going to pray a prayer. You can pray it with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you loved us enough to send Jesus. Lord, I agree that I, my sin deserves punishment. 
Lord, I cannot save myself. I don't know how to save myself. I certainly don't deserve your love. But thank you that you're a gracious God, that you are merciful, and you have offered me freedom from sin, freedom from judgment, and a life with you in eternity. Lord, I surrender to you right now. I give my life to you. I trust you. I receive Jesus as my Lord and my Saviour. I receive him into my life. I want him to take charge of my life, to be the guide of my life now. And Lord, I believe that through this prayer, you have removed the, the possibility of judgment from my life and I can live in the freedom of knowing that death has no terrors for me. It holds no terrors for me. Thank you, Father God, for your amazing love. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, please come and tell us that you did. Please come and pray. So then just to finish, let's finish on a more positive note in a sense, although that is positive if you responded appropriately. For those who repent and receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour, there is a glorious future. And this is what it says at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God's going to renew everything. Not just give us new bodies, but a new place to live. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the, the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Father, these are sobering words, but you give them to us because you love us. Father, help us each one, Lord, to recognise the awesomeness, uh, Lord, of your holiness and the, the prospect of, of judgement and yet, Lord, to rejoice that you have given us a way of escape. Lord, you've rescued us and we can now enjoy freedom from condemnation and we can look forward, Lord, to our heavenly home with you. Thank you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I say, if you have prayed or you have really burning questions about that, please come and see us. Obviously, we haven't tackled everything. There are loads and loads of questions that could be asked. But um, I hope you found that helpful.